And so I'm issuing a challenge to Justin Trudeau today. If you really understand the suffering of Canadians, Mr. Prime Minister, if you understand that people can't gas their cars, feed their families, or afford homes for themselves, if you really care, commit today that there will be no new tax increases on workers and on seniors. None. Well, it's a new era in Canadian politics. Pierre Polyev is the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Massive first ballot victory on Saturday and laying down the gauntlet today. So let's get right into it. What does his victory mean for the Conservative Party, for conservatism, for politics in this country? How worried should the Liberals be? Uh, it's an interesting moment in Canadian politics for a lot of reasons. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome back to the program our friend Elise Mills, conservative analyst and strategist, a senior counsel in Canada-U.S. relations. Elise, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Nice to be back. Yeah, what an interesting moment we're at here in, in federal politics. Uh, you know, Pierre Polyev's ascension, you know, all kinds of, of problems, uh, you know, on, on the policy file in, in Ottawa. Your sense, just first of all, in terms of where we're at, this, this moment we're at in Canadian politics. We're at this incredible intersection that gives us so many opportunities. And, you know, I, I was saying to you off air, I recognize the pandemic was going to as horrible and as frightening as it was, I wasn't stuck in the moment that we were all going to, you know, turn into zombies, like something, you know, it wasn't going to be like that, but that we were going to have a long, difficult road. I also recognized that it was going to lift the veil on some very serious issues this country has. Number Mm -hmm. one, our regulatory environment. Foreign investors hate it. It's chaotic. It's crazy. There was also the issue of, um, you know, the socioeconomic issues. Were Canadians uh, able then to put their finger on why they're not moving ahead? Uh, We were also going to see a huge correction in politics and media and how Canadians felt and and thought. And I knew it wasn't going to come through the leadership of, um, you know, the leadership races of, of the pandemic or the elections of the pandemic. But I knew that when the vaccine came in or whatever that solution was going to be, and it was the vaccine, that things would settle down and people would then start checking the state of affairs in their own backyards. And so now what we're starting to see is the economic, fiscal and monetary outcome of being asleep at the switch for the last decade. Right. And people are noticing. People are frustrated, people are angry, there's uncertainty in the country at the moment, and it's created a real opening, hasn't it, for Pierre Paglia, because the Liberals, as you say, they, they seem to, in some ways, have, have checked out altogether, but Pierre seems to sense the mood in the country right now. Your thoughts on why he has resonated so much? Well, and this is, and no offense to our your colleagues and my colleagues in the media, but in central Canada, they were spending a lot of time trying to diffuse this narrative of anger. They were suggesting that there's no reason to be angry. What's wrong with you guys? And really sort of putting it into uh, what I would call a negative narrative around Western Canadians. It was all Western Canadians' fault. They're the only negative Nazis in the in the room. Reality is that Canadians took a while to figure out why they weren't feeling good. And everybody thought it was the pandemic. But then they started thinking about what was happening before the pandemic. And then the energy prices, then inflation kicks in. And those are outcomes of huge missteps that are not that 
far off in history. They're recent history. Um, This isn't about COVID spending necessarily. Everybody agrees. You don't want your next door neighbor to starve. It's the first time we had dealt with a pandemic. It would have been helpful if Justin Trudeau had actually implemented the pandemic emergency plan and not left it on a shelf. That's another example of a regulatory policy environment that doesn't exist in Canada right now. We also didn't have a monetary fiscal or monetary 10-year plan, which every prime minister has done but Justin Trudeau. So we're missing some of the roadmaps, but none of that, you know, we'll leave that aside. The issue really became what's left after the pandemic, what's left after everyone's vaccinated. And everybody started to count their marbles. And a lot of Canadians had less marbles in their hand than they had before the pandemic. It wasn't necessarily because of the pandemic, Rob. And I think Canadians are finally understanding that. And it's something Pierre always knew about. The other thing that I thought was really important was that um, and you saw this in his speech to, today with caucus, mm-hmm. but he really began to speak on it in his acceptance speech uh, over the weekend. And that was the introduction of cause-driven conservatism which is something I've hugely advocated for, whether I've been in the States or in Canada. It's something I try and get moderate Republicans to understand. It's something that I try and get Canadian or conservatives here to understand. Put the pitchforks down. Cause-driven conservatism is the way that we can all be part of the franchise of getting this country back to where it needs to be. And where Pierre started was the idea of social mobility and the lack thereof in this country. And he really begins to speak to it when he shares his personal story, uh, being uh, this, the, the birth son of a mom who was a single mom who had to give him up for adoption, and then who his adoptive parents were, and the idea that anyone in this country can be whatever they want to be if they put their mind to it and they're willing to work hard. And I think this quote really Im- embodies what everyone's feeling. If I can just say, if I can just quote him, he said, that hope has melted into hurt. And that is the message I would give to the media in central Canada. It's the hurt. It's not anger. It's hurt. And it's disappointment in the country. There's an audience for that right now. Absolutely. I mean, look, Pierre has the reputation of, of being a bit of a pit bull, being a fighter, and, and, and maybe that, that's a part of who he is. But at the end of the day, I think Canadians are, are looking for someone to inspire them. Canadians are looking for hope. Canadians are looking for optimism. That's what's going to sell. And I think he realizes that. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea of social mobility is something that the left hasn't properly captured. So You and I have seen it, Rob, especially in the last year when the Liberals and the NDP built that, I'm going to call it a coalition because it's a pact. It's a signed document that says the NDP will prop up the Liberals and avoid a triggering an election until 2025 if the Liberals agree to the following things. And the way they express the problems that you and I are talking about right now is through wealth redistribution and increased taxes. And the way that they identify higher income Canadians is anyone making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Now my, when I'm in Canada, my residence is Vancouver. You've got to be kidding me that a hundred thousand dollars makes me wealthy. 
As you know, Rob, I'm a single parent, have been pretty much from the day my daughter was born. I've had to fight and scrap for everything I have. I didn't have wealthy parents. I'm probably closely aligned to where Pierre came from, Mm -hmm. that type of generation and that type of uh, family income that he probably was, was raised with. And nothing was handed to me. So to tell me that you want more of my money because you've mismanaged it, or you want to put a dental... I, I, I love the idea of a dental plan. I love the idea of everyone having what they need. But what I don't like is this idea that you have to come after me, or you want to redistribute wealth. Why is the only policy taxation? Why can't it be something simple as actually you know, pulling your finger out and doing what you're supposed to do, put some monetary policy on the table, put some fiscal policy on the table and stop over-regulating this country. And I mean, I think we're getting pretty close uh, with the NDP and the Liberal Coalition where we're going to all, we're not only going to, you know, get our Canadian flags in the mail, but we're probably going to get a helmet. You know, it, it just, at the end of the day, there's too much government overreach and they're not actually in the lanes that they're supposed to be in. Look at justice. Look at the issue of paroles. Look at our poor brothers and sisters and cousins in Saskatchewan dealing with that type of horrific mass, mass murder. That comes directly from keeping it, taking your eye off the ball where it needs to be. Stop going to conventions that talk about clean energy. That's really important. But get back to actually what, what I, I can't remember exactly how my father said it, but I need the garbage picked up. I, need, I yeah. need to know there's water. I need to know that I can afford to pay my energy bill. After that, everything's gravy, right? It's interesting, too, that, you know, the energy issue ties into all of this. And I think there's a real moment here, you know, not just for the conservatives, but I think for Western Canada to seize. This has become a pocketbook issue. The idea that we're not able to to get our product to market, we're not able to export LNG, we're not capitalizing on the economic opportunities that are there because that affects Canadians, that affects Canadian salaries, that affects Canadian jobs. And I'd give Pierre credit because he certainly tied those issues together. And, you know, the frustration in the West that we can't get other Canadians to to buy in. I I think there's an appetite for that right now. Well, I totally agree with you. And I think the cause-driven conservatism that I'm talking about actually is a cause-driven Canadianism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think what the great thing about that is, is that it's it's able to put high-level policy on the table, take it down to bite-sized chunks. So Canadians, whether you're in Newfoundland, St. John's, uh, you know, wherever, Quebec City, Alberta, Vancouver, and you're able to understand that your actions or this perpetual and definitely intended division of Canadian to Canadian um, that only benefits liberal governments is at your detriment. And that high-level cause-driven Canadianism, as I call it, or conservatism, as some are calling it, that Pierre's pushing now, and I'm not just pushing, but I think he, he, he truly believes in it, not only unites conservatives from coast to coast to coast, but unites other stakeholders in this country. And it allows the voter to understand why we need to have these conversations outside of political lines or tribes. We, this country has been divided and sliced and diced so much that it's so bad right now that the province of British Columbia, you know, on the island will not agree with somebody in Metro Vancouver and somebody in Metro Vancouver won't agree with another person in Metro Vancouver because there's now five different political groups in there too. 
that is directly correlated to Trudeau. That is directly correlated to a lot of the Trudeau cabinet ministers, Trudeau teams. And it was, it's such a, I don't want to say embarrassment. I'd say it's the, the hurt in my heart. We have missed opportunities because we've been playing by his rules. We're, the, the, the rules of this game are what one has, the other one cannot have. So, for example, let's talk about energy. I think every Albertan should know, if they don't already know, that Newfoundland and Quebec not only mine and drill, but pump and develop in a way that you would never be allowed to or us in British Columbia could never help you export. It is against the law to move it here, but it's okay to move it there. I would I would say to Albertans and especially advocates or what I would call sort of political citizens, take a road trip out to the St. Lawrence Seaway. Whales are dying there. They cannot communicate with each other. Go to the harbor in Newfoundland. It is a disgusting graveyard of 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 I don't even know what to describe it. I wouldn't even put my finger in there for fear it would fall off. It is a graveyard, it's toxic, it's disgusting. Do I want British Columbia to look like that? No. But I happen to know that we are some of the best environmental sheriffs in the country out here. And I'm a conservative who's a conservationist. I work with environmental groups all the time. I give a ton of money. Why can we not achieve great out here, excellence out here? But there's an imbalance here. What I can't do with a mining company in British Columbia, I have carte blanche to do in Quebec. Let's talk about the politics and the political roadmap here for the Conservatives. Look, the, the Trudeau brand is really at a low point. Uh, the Liberal political machine, though, it still very much exists. So uh, it, step one is getting the party unified for the Conservatives. It feels like, at least for the moment, that's the case. But beyond that, what does Pierre need to do to build up the party, build up that electoral readiness? What, what are they up against still? I, I, I think it, they're up against... I think themselves to some to a little bit right now. I think we're more they're more unified than people think or the media think. But I think that cause driven conservatism I was talking about is the great unifier. It allows everyone to put the pitchforks away or their soapboxes away and have a very community conservative like experience. But the double uh, the benefit to that is that Canadians will also feel comfortable having those conversations and don't feel like they have to be a party member, but they can vote for Pierre. I also think that what Pierre's done is he has shot down every single narrative about him. And when I saw the look on Dominic LeBlanc's face yesterday, when I saw the look on some of the strategists' face, like Susan Smith from Blue Sky Strategies, die-in-the-wool, liberal, Trudeau supporter, one of the founders of Canada 2020, which is the biggest joke in the country, that look on her face told me everything. When he came out with his wife, when he started showing his children, when he started talking about his family life, those, all of those narratives were beaten down one by one by one by one. And there is a real energy around him. And even media that I've spoken to today, friends in the media, people that you probably know yourself, Rob, can sense the change coming. And this is Trudeau's worst nightmare. He wants to fight uh, Pierre Polyev. That's fine. I welcome it. And so does Pierre. The great thing about Pierre is that his natural uh, sort of human position, his go, his default is fight. 
is debate. He is intrinsically that person. He is, and the great thing as well, and you saw it as he demonstrated in his closing remarks on the weekend, thanking Jean Charest, talking about how he has a role. He was once a candidate, now he's the leader. And you saw that shift. He is able to do something that I can, that is generations lost. He can have a good old fashioned political fight and shake hands at the end of the day. There's no there there's no place to go to other than up afterwards, and I miss the gentleman like sport of it, and he really demonstrated that, um, and I think it forced Sean Charest to respond in a video message on the weekend that he was going to stay a party member, as I presumed he would, and he was going to help Pierre Polyev. That's exactly what we want to start seeing. And I think that's a message that's going to resonate in very different ways and very different talking points to Canadians. And, you know, liberals are complaining he doesn't have an economic plan. I mean, it's a joke. Are you serious? The liberals on the last election gave me two pages in their election book on what they were going to do economically and fiscally, policy-wise in this country. When he was first elected in 2015, it was literally three pages of just pictures under fiscal policy, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a joke. And then, you know, liberals are talking about how he's been a career politician and he, and he's made $150,000 a year ever since he was 30 years old. Is Susan Smith and Dominic LeBlanc, are they aware that their leader is Justin Trudeau? Like it, 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 it just dumbfounds me, Rob. So I'm looking forward to the fight. I'm, I'm very disappointed that the NDP have allowed the Liberals to hold on to 2025. And I'm thinking, just listening to Anne McGrath, who is the uh, national chair for the NDP, uh, former campaign uh, manager uh, or strategist for uh, Dominic LeBlanc, and an incredibly uh, amazing strategist, great um, uh person to to spar with she had that look on her face like she knew that the time the bell was ringing that she understood that paul had put or paul sorry pierre had put his finger on the pulse of canada and i wonder if that means the ndp might actually walk away from that agreement the tides may turn so much rob they might have to well, it's, it's hard to envision what the Liberals would even do over the next three years. They don't even seem to have much of an agenda for the next several months, let alone the next the next three years. Uh, and, and, you know, both of us have been around long enough that we remember the 2000 election. Jean Chrétien sensed that there was an opportunity to catch a new opposition leader off guard. And, you know, they, they yep. rolled the dice. I mean, do you, do you envision that as a possible scenario here this fall? Uh, I think Trudeau... It, it, so this morning in front of caucus, he... Promised, he's a caucus uh, in Atlantic Canada today. It's their first caucus face to face since 2019, and he told Trudeau told his caucus he's here to run again and he's going to fight another day. Yeah. I do not believe it. Every leader says that, and you have to say it. You know as well as I do, Rob. They have to say it. I thought, is this guy going to pull the pin? Is he going to force us into an early election? I think he is smart enough, or at least his strategists are, to know that that type of humor, hubris in 2022, 2023 is a surefire way to ensure that they end up with five seats in the House hmm. or six or 10 or whatever. Yeah. It will be the it will be the sort of 1993 reversal for the liberals as it was for conservatives. Right. Where it was like, you know, two MPs from the conservative or that conservative party the progressive conservative party i think that he also has to look at the health of the country 
as much as I'd love an election uh, in the next six to 10 months, um, I also know that this country has other things it's got to do. But after that six to 10, 12 months, it's time for an election. And I think it is a matter of, it is a matter for the health of the country to have an election. I have, I don't think I've ever said that before. And I would say that about any government in this, in this country or any federal government in this country that had done what they've done. And there are so many stories piling up about the lack of transparency, shady deals with companies like Alphabet, Google. Uh, there are so many stories now piling up from, from outlets that would normally be propping them up that I think this is just a matter of time now, Rob. And I think that's why I'm going to the NDP saying, you know, I'd love to say to Anne McGrath, are you going to pull the pin on this? Right. How can you look in the mirror and mm-hmm. prop this government up. Dental care is something everyone can talk about later, but it's right now not going to happen. You know it's not going to happen. Trudeau knows it's not going to happen. Is that the hill you're going to die on? Redistribution of wealth? Do you really think you're going to get any more seats in the House? I would have that honest conversation. And I think conservative strategists are probably thinking like I am. Elise, we'll leave it there. Fantastic insight as always, and it's always a delight to chat. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Always, Rob. One of my favorites. Always happy to come back. There you go. Conservative analyst and strategist Elise Mills. Her thoughts on Pierre Polyev's victory and uh, the state of politics in this country. Well, welcome back. Much more to get to in the program here this afternoon, including the latest on what's going on in Ukraine. What appears to have been over the last few days a remarkably successful Ukrainian counteroffensive. We'll have the latest thought on that and what the implications of that could be. I want to turn our attention to where there's an interesting opportunity for Alberta oil. And and obviously, look, we heard the prime minister today talking about net zero. We're at an interesting point right now when it comes to energy, right? The, The transition that is coming. And the expectation that at some point, whether that's near term, medium term, longer term, we'll start to phase out our reliance on so called fossil fuels. And this has been pointed out to me in the past by some of you out there. You know, the question for the people who want to to get rid of oil, what do they think goes into making our roads? Now, there's an interesting story there in terms of how Alberta crude can be the answer to fixing Canada's crumbling road networks. There's a really interesting feature piece in the Financial Post today that talks about this. Author Joe O'Connor writes, A pan-Canadian crisis gripping municipalities big and small beset with roads needing repair and budgets that can't keep up with the increase in costs. But the solution to this pricey conundrum could come from an unlikely savior in this dawning age of climate awareness, Alberta Crude. So joining us to talk a bit more about kind of what goes into making our roads and what advantage Alberta has, Alberta Crude has, in making roads that last longer. I'm very pleased to welcome uh, to the program here this afternoon uh, Professor Simon Hesp who's an engineering, chemical engineering professor at Queen's University in Kingston uh, with a focus on asphalt pavement engineering, chemical engineering. Professor Hasp, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, Rob. All right, let's start with that simple, easy question. What, what is asphalt? What, what goes into making our roads? It's the bottom of the barrel. Uh, basically, the, uh, 
heavy molecules that cannot easily be distilled. And on average in the world, about 5%, even less, maybe 2 to 5% of the crude oil that is uh, processed in refineries makes it onto our pavements. And uh, they can make very good roads if it comes from Alberta crude, Venezuelan crude. Or it can make not so good roads when it maybe comes from the U.S., Texas, Middle East, Russia. There are different qualities of crudes in terms of their ability to make asphalt binder that is uh, durable. Mm-hmm. So basically it's the, the bottom 5 to 10%. The binder you mentioned, which I guess kind of is what holds it all together, as the name implies. Uh, so, so how crucial is that then? Well, it's critical. If you have no binder in an asphalt road, you have a gravel road. Basically, a typical asphalt road has around 5 to 6% asphalt binder, which is the glue, the sticky stuff. And the rest is aggregate. It has a specific gradation and some filler, some dust material. Sand is there to make it a good, coherent structure that can carry heavy trucks and cars for a very long period of time. Typical design lives are 40 to 50 years. Very few roads last that long because the designs do not match the actual realized life cycles. And that's because of a lot of issues with specifications to to put into the design of the road. What about Canadian weather? What's the impact of, you know, hot summers and freezing cold winters and those temperature changes? How does that put pressure on on all of this? Well, hot summers, they cook the surface of the road and and the asphalt binder. It's an organic material. So it slowly hardens. Small, small molecules that can evaporate or even wash away with with the rain. And then the heavier molecules, they get oxidized with oxygen. At high summer temperatures, the surface of the road can be 50, 60 degrees. And then in the cold winter, the longitudinal direction, it cannot shrink. It wants to shrink because the temperature drops, sometimes minus 40, minus 50 degrees centigrade in the air. We had a trial in Le Mans, Alberta, that's northeast of Edmonton. And the first winter, that trial reached an air temperature of minus 50 degrees centigrade. So if you cool an asphalt road over 40 to 50 degrees, say from zero to minus 40, you would shrink it by about a centimeter every meter. And eventually, if the the asphalt cannot flow enough, if it is uh, becoming too hard, the oxidation on the surface is too hard, and other chemical processes occur in in the material itself related to waxes, then it shrinks and then it cracks. The only way it can release that longitudinal stress is by cracking. So that's why you get transverse cracks that are relatively evenly spaced on a typical highway, which is under-designed for the cold winters. Canadian roads, but anywhere about from the north of Texas to Maine to Alaska, California, and the high altitudes, we have cold weather in the winter, and that starts to degradation process that never stops and you have a life cycle of 15 years 20 years and very good asphalt binder we can get 40 years out of it we have test sections in ontario that were constructed by the ministry of transportation 20 years ago we followed them for 20 years 
and they look in extremely good shape today. And that's because the Alberta crude, it has very low wax content. As is geological formation, only Venezuela and Alberta, there's two places on Earth that have this specific attribute, and it's extremely beneficial. Well, that, that's quite a difference. I mean, that's, that's a life cycle that's, you know, potentially twice, twice as long, maybe even three, three times, times as long. Three times, four times, you yeah. name it. I speak to DOTs in the U.S., and they get seven to ten-year life cycles on new resurfacing. It's insane. We have funding from Alberta Innovates. They have a bitumen beyond combustion program. It's an arm's length agency for the Alberta government. Fabulous support we get. We're testing samples from California, from Alaska, from Maine, Michigan, Ohio, everywhere. Texas, not from Florida because there's no cold weather there. But anywhere you go about 100 kilometers from the ocean and anywhere north of Texas, you get this transverse cracking and then wheel path cracking because there is a transverse stress as well with the trucks going in the wheel path. It zips it open longitudinally. You get these transverse cracks, and that's the beginning of the end. And the key is to make this asphalt binder, the glue, stay fluid in the wintertime. So you need low waxes because these waxes, like a candle wax, it crystallizes at low temperature, and then it becomes brittle. So what kind of engineering progress or, or technological improvements would we need to, to see that, you know, 40 year cycle life cycle become 60 years or more? Well, we, we, we are doing experiments with recycled plastic fiber from, from pop bottles. It's called polyethylene terphthalate or PET for short. And they can toughen these mixes dramatically in the lab. And we have one test section in northern Ontario in Timmins that's about as cold as in Edmonton. And it will have a predicted life. It has a predicted life of 40 years. And we can accurately predict that because every year the ministry sends a truck out that has laser scanners. It measures the rutting. It measures the cracking. It measures the raveling, everything on the edge. And it has a so-called pavement condition index. Starts at 100 at day one. When it gets to 50, they rehabilitate that road. So that section with a straight-run asphalt from Cold Lake, Alberta, is predicted to last 40 years. When we put in fibers in different ways, when we put in anti-oxidizing agents that it doesn't harden so quickly in the summer, we can probably get longer. You also quoted in this this article saying that Alberta has enough reserves underground to pave every road on Earth for the next 100 to 200 years, and it's really remarkable to think in those terms. Uh, that that's pretty aspirational. But I mean, in in the you know short to medium term, what what more do we need to do so that we're incorporating more of this? Well, it's up to government to change the specifications that we do better testing of the materials up front, and we tighten those requirements. And then the supply will naturally gravitate to those higher quality crude oils. So the media has it wrong quite often when it comes to the oil sands, because I do understand the climate is changing. We get winters where you suddenly have 15 degrees in the middle of the the winter in January. 
So these freeze-thaw cycles, they wreck the pavement when there are cracks present. The water melts, gets into the crack, freezes again, breaks open, you get potholes. So the key to make better pavements is to prevent these cracks from occurring right from the start. And that the only way possible is by using very good quality asphalt binder made from crude sources that are low in wax. You can't remove the wax from a Russian crude, a Middle Eastern crude, a Texas crude, because it's too expensive. But you can start off with a crude that has no wax in it, Alberta, Venezuela, and very few other places. You get fabulous performance. But you need to do it intelligently. You need to look at the bigger picture, the whole system, and design things properly. And at the moment, in many jurisdictions, almost anything goes. You can use old pavement, blend it in with a new mix. You get seven to ten year life cycles. Not a surprise. But the current specifications in many places in the U.S. and around the world, they let that happen because basically it, it was easy. There was lots of money and the environment wasn't a big issue. But today, people have to be smarter. And whatever it is, 10, 20, 30 years, we're all driving electric cars or hydrogen cars or whatever it ends up being, we're still going to need roads. So, you know, this conversation about moving away from the oil industry or leaving this in the ground, it seems yeah, like this, this totally changes that conversation, right? It just doesn't make sense. Uh, if you believe in climate change and electrification of the, the car fleet, then you have to understand that cars are not going to go on gravel roads. It's just highly uneconomical and slows down tenfold, and it just doesn't work. Fascinating stuff. Professor Haspel, leave it there. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate your insight on this. Pleasure to talk to you. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Simon Hess, a professor in the Department of Chemistry at uh, Queen's University, uh, focusing his research on chemical engineering around asphalt and pavement. So really interesting look at the advantage Alberta oil has and how we can use this to our advantage in this country and building roads that'll last. Building roads that whatever it is are electric, hydrogen, whatever cars can drive on for years and years and years to come. Seems like kind of a win-win. Ukrainian military says its forces are now also pushing north of Kharkiv towards the Russian border. Two officials in that region telling us that Ukrainian troops are set to retake the whole of the Kharkiv region. President Zelensky saying the Russians are panicking. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they should be. Welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you. Now, look, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the death of Queen Elizabeth II has been a major focus for us in recent days. And you got the conservative leadership race and so much else going on. Let's not lose sight, though, of uh, what is happening on the ground in Ukraine, because it's, it is significant, maybe even, dare I say, historic. 200 days since Russia invaded, an invasion that Putin's regime and its apologist uh, said would take days. The march on Kiev, Kiev would fall, Zelensky would flee. That didn't happen. Ukrainians mounted a brave resistance, while at the same time pleading for help from the West. Help us fight off this invasion. It's not just about us, clearly it is to them, but it's about the future of Europe. It's about emboldening a brutal tyrant that's prepared to invade a neighbor. So it was certainly in our interest to give Ukraine the tools to fight, because the will to fight was there. And what an inspiration Zelensky has been. But it's been a tough slog. 
fending off the initial uh, invasion, but you know, getting bogged down in certain areas, Russia obviously seizing some territory. But the last few days, things have changed dramatically. Obviously, it remains to be seen how lasting all of this is, but it's raised a lot of hope and optimism that a Ukrainian victory is possible. Maybe even, dare we say, likely. This counteroffensive that's unfolded over the last couple of days uh, has been remarkably successful. Probably even defying even the most optimistic expectations about what could be achieved. You're also seeing on Russian state television. Commentators daring to say the uh, unthinkable that is this all a big mistake? What have we gotten ourselves into? So it's an interesting moment right now in terms of uh, what's happening there and how significant it could all be. And like we say, a Ukrainian victory is not guaranteed. But we need to start planning for that possibility because that will have some huge implications for Ukraine, for Russia, for Europe. In a good way, sure. But let's start preparing for that. Joining us for some thoughts on uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome back to the program Aurel Braun, uh, Professor of International Relations and Political Science at the University of Toronto. Professor Braun, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. Uh, like I say, it's been incredible to, to see these images, to hear these accounts uh, of the Ukrainian success and, and what almost appears at some level to be a collapse of, of Russian troops in some parts of Ukraine. But w- what's your read on the situation so far and how meaningful this is? This is potentially a game changer. I emphasize potentially because the information we have is limited. It is not always reliable. Uh, There is a good deal of fluidity. There may be a Russian counterattack. But from the sources that we have so far, the information that we have, it does appear that the Russians have suffered a disastrous setback that is important not only militarily, but also politically and psychologically. Right, and on that point, and it's been really interesting to see, even on, on Russian television, which is so tightly controlled, you, know, you start to see little bits of criticism seeping through and commentators on television asking questions about how this has gone so badly and what did we get ourselves into. Uh, that seems incredibly significant to me. What, what's your read on that? It, it potentially is because um, Vladimir Putin tried uh, throughout his rule to project this image of invincibility and of inevitability. So when he moved into uh, Ukraine the second time, his expectation was that this would be a very short campaign, that the government would collapse in Ukraine, that the Europeans would cave in, and that Russia would have a major external victory, which would solidify his rule domestically so he could continue that very corrupt uh, Uh, kind of regime that is running. So he miscalculated from the beginning, and this seems to be a second miscalculation where he, after losing out on his initial goals, thought that he could just wear Ukraine down. That through a process of sheer mass and brutality, he could so damage Ukraine that eventually would collapse, that the European economies would suffer so significantly because of energy cutoffs that the Europeans would also cave in and see compromises. And indeed, we have seen demonstrations in some cities in Europe, and there are political parties that are calling for an abandonment of Ukraine. Well, this can change that, because what it demonstrates is that Russia continues to miscalculate, that uh, they cannot wear Ukraine down, that in fact, 
uh, Russia's performance remains very poor, that the Russian military is as corrupt uh, as Russian society has become under Vladimir Putin, and that consequently we have a situation where Ukraine has effectively incorporated Western weapons, that it is not a lost cause, that providing Ukraine with help is uh, not only doing the right thing morally, but also strategically uh, may indeed be exactly what needs to be done. So at every single level, this is potentially very beneficial for Ukraine and uh, possibly quite disastrous for the Putin regime. Right. We, we've spoken about Canada's role in, in assisting Ukraine, and, and maybe we could have done more sooner. But, you know, we've been a part of the response. And my goodness, what a vindication of the Western strategy, certainly led by the Americans, in ensuring that Ukraine had the tools to fight. We know that they had the will to fight. They needed the tools. And, and that's what we're seeing right now, isn't it? Well, that is exactly what we are seeing, that this is not about Afghanistan, where hundreds of billions of dollars were absolutely wasted where the government ran away. This is a situation where uh, President Zelensky remained. He showed extraordinary courage. It was really a type of Churchillian response when it was suggested that he should evacuate. You remember the words that he used are really memorable, uh, that uh, I uh, need ammunition. I'm not looking for a ride. And what the Ukrainians have demonstrated has been astonishing tenacity and remarkable skill. And they've only asked for the weapons to be able to defend themselves, to defend their country. And they seem to be doing that very effectively. The foreign minister of one of the Baltic states, in fact, remarked somewhat bitterly that had we provided Ukraine with weapons earlier, perhaps this counteroffensive might have also happened earlier, right. could have saved lives. We, we just don't know, but obviously, uh, those weapons have been used very effectively. And as you say, at this point, Ukrainian victory is, is not guaranteed. And, you know, we don't know how it's going to play out. But at least there's the strong possibility of a Ukrainian victory. And it's not just something that, that would be marked or even celebrated. In terms of our foreign policy, I mean, how much do we need to plan for this possibility? Ukrainian victory would have all kinds of really significant repercussions, really change the political order in, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, for sure. You, you're quite correct. And in a sense, we also need to define what we consider victory. Yeah. Would this mean that uh, Russia would be pushed back to the lines that they occupied on uh, the day before the invasion, when they invaded, invaded on the 24th of February? They had already controlled Crimea, which they annexed illegally, and they controlled part of the Donbass. So if the Ukrainian forces are able to push them back to that line, would that be deemed adequate? Mm-hmm. Or would it be a situation where uh, they would go beyond that and try to liberate uh, Crimea as well? And that could result in a new kind of confrontation. So is there some kind of compromise solution? Uh, uh, would it be that at that stage, if the Ukrainians are able to push the Russians back from something like close to 20% of their territory that has been occupied since February 24th, would that be a good point to start negotiations? Um, Also, there are certain risks. 
it's a low risk, and Russia has tried to use this as a form of blackmail, the threat of nuclear weapons. Yeah. What are the risks at that stage that Russia might resort to some kind of nuclear response out of sheer desperation? I'm rather skeptical, but we cannot just dismiss that. Right. That, that's the frightening thing uh, amid all of this optimism of, you know, a cornered uh, Vladimir Putin facing a, a, a true disaster here. What, what is he capable of? He desperately wants to stay in power. Now, we must remember that he is not a fanatical uh, theologian who believes that uh, he will have this uh, reward in an afterlife. He is a really corrosively corrupt kleptocrat who enjoys the good life uh, on, on Earth. So he's definitely not suicidal. And so he wants to stay through the regime. And this is why he may try to find his own off-ramp, uh, not something that we need to provide uh, for him. Our concern should be uh, to make sure that he fails. Boris Johnson enunciated the kind of strategy early on when he said that Vladimir Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine must not only fail, but it must be seen to fail, because that would act as a deterrent. It would also send a message to the Chinese that this kind of uh, aggression, which the Xi Jinping uh, regime might try against Taiwan, doesn't succeed, doesn't pay off. So there's a tremendous amount at stake here, and uh, Vladimir Putin also understands that it's essential that the Europeans in particular understand this, because sadly, we might not have found ourselves in this situation had the Germans not allowed themselves to become so utterly dependent on Russian energy to embolden Russia, to allow Vladimir Putin to build up his coffers, to have more than $600 billion in reserve, reserves, which then convinced him that he could uh, survive sanctions and that he could uh, uh, proceed with this invasion. We need to be very careful what the United States communicates and what it does. The catastrophic uh, withdrawal of the Biden administration from Afghanistan sent the wrong message to Russia. Indeed it did. Yes, well, we'll see uh, what plays out in the coming days and weeks. Some important moments ahead for sure. Professor Braun, thanks for your insight. Appreciate you joining us here today. Thank you for having me on. That's uh, Oral Braun, professor of international relations, uh, political science, University of Toronto. I want to take a look right now at uh, economic freedom. Once again, Canada is on the outside looking in when it comes to the 10 most economically free countries in the world. We used to be pretty regularly in the top 10. I mean, we're not that far outside Canada ranked number 14, but we've slid. We were last in the top 10 in 2017. Before that, only outside of the top 10 once way back in 1970. So joining us to talk a bit more about why Canada has slid in these rankings and, and what we're talking about when we talk about the concept of economic freedom and why that's so important. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon. One of the authors uh, of this research, uh, the annual uh, report on economic freedom in the world up at uh, the Fraser Institute's website, fraserinstitute.org. Fred McMahon joins us, Michael Walker, Chair of Economic Freedom Research at the Fraser Institute. Fred, great to have you with us here. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Thanks for your interest in this. Let's talk first of all, you know, the idea of economic freedom. And it's separate from political freedom. I think the two go hand in hand, really, truly, when we're talking about freedom. But when we focus on economic freedom, what are we looking at? 
Well, there's a long technical definition, but it's simply that you are able to make your own choices, economic choices, without interference from crony elites or overly powerful government. They don't take too much of your money. And everyone is protected by a solid rule of law, whether you're rich and powerful or weak and poor. Right. So we can we can measure the, the laws, uh, your regulations. Obviously, I, I suppose to some extent, maybe we're measuring economic outcomes. How do we determine rankings? Uh, we look at uh, 43 separate variables in, in, in five areas, size of government, rule of law, uh, sound money, freedom to trade and regulation. And then we put all those uh, together and come up with the score and the rank. And it's interesting to look at why it matters, and especially when you look in the developing worlds where this is more pronounced. And we compare countries that have high amounts of economic freedom compared to those that don't. What, what kind of differences do we see in terms of quality of life and GDP? Oh, huge, huge differences. I mean, the, the per capita GDP of economically free nations, the top economically free nations, is around $50,000 U.S. per person. For non-economically free nations, it's around $5,000 per person. Uh, the amount of extreme poverty in non-economically free nations, you know, $1.90 a day. Extreme poverty is around 30%. and free nations, it's under 1%. The per capita income of the poorest, 10%. In economically free nations, is about $14,000 a year compared to uh, uh, under $1,000 in the least free nations. Just a huge difference. Wow. I want to talk about Canada, obviously, but something that really fascinates me and, and the discrepancy in this list where you've got Hong Kong still in the top position, and we've all seen some of the political changes there, but Hong Kong still remains number one in terms of economic freedom. China itself, though, way down in 116th place. So why such a difference? What, what uh, remains at least positive in terms of economic freedom in Hong Kong? Well, the, the first thing to note is that this is data from 2020. That's the most recent right. comprehensive data where you, we can compare one nation to another after the data is massaged so that it's equal. Uh, even so, we've seen a very significant fall in the economic freedom of Hong Kong. It's still number one, but it's been falling. And what the mainland authorities have done is more or less protect uh, – economic commercial law from uh, interference, uh, kept the regulations low, kept the size of government low. So in economic freedom, it's still, well, as you said, uh, number uh, one. I don't expect that to last. I mean, uh, the uh, calling the, uh, the China communist is not quite right. It's more of a fascist regime. And you know, you have to be friends of government to succeed. And if you aren't a friend of government and you succeed, you succeed in jail. So that's going to creep into uh, to Hong Kong and downgrade it. As for human freedom, and we do a human freedom index uh, where we look at things like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, and so on. And there, Hong Kong is just falling like a stone. So uh, economic freedom... They've managed to maintain, but they won't for a long time because they're crony socialist, fascist, capitalists, and uh, political and personal freedom is already on the big decline. 
Yeah, really sad to see. Uh, we look through the rest of the top 10, and, and certainly there's some comparable nations, you know, from Canada's perspective. you got Switzerland, New Zealand, Denmark, Australia, Ireland, and, of course, the United States is in there. Uh, so what are these countries doing right? Well, let me mention Denmark first, because there's a focus here in Canada uh, on size of government, and that's quite right. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a huge government, but it's also inefficient and somewhat corrupt uh, government. But we also don't have great regulations. Our rule of law is not top-notch, and it's been degraded by some uh, political uh, actions. The reason Denmark is at is number five in the world is while it scores very poorly on size of government, it scores immensely well on everything else. One of the most open trade-oriented economies in the world. Regulations are uh, business uh friendly, the rule of law is fair to all. So economic freedom is multi-dimensional uh, and isn't just eroded uh, by size of government. But for Canada, we're much too large. What these countries all do is they have a mix of good things, solid rule of law, uh, openness to trade, regulations that don't stifle business or tell people what they must do or must not do, uh, and they're all either prosperous or growing rapidly to prosperity. Now, and we should note, I mean, you know, when we're including 2020 data, obviously 2020 was an unusual and unique year, and, and there's there's surely a pandemic effect in, in this data. But, you know, from Canada's perspective, we had fallen to the top 10 even before 2020. So where has Canada started to lose its way? Well, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that. Canada had quite a significant fall in uh, 2020, but it was within the range mm-hmm. of falls. In other words, it was about an average fall as people clamped down on this uh, and that and reduced freedom uh, in general. And here I'm not making a statement as to whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. We just measure freedom, not the appropriateness of the responses. Canada uh, has fallen back in a number of areas. Uh, Trade, openness to trade is not what it uh, used to be. Uh, Our biggest fall is in uh, size of government. And again, looking at Denmark, we should ask whether we're getting what we pay for, and we're paying uh, a lot. And we've also had uh, a significant fall in some aspects of the rule of law, like impartial uh, courts. And that is – now, we get the scores. These are done by – surveys and so on, so they don't exactly explain what's going on. But I think some of the politicized decisions, particularly in the oil patch, are affecting the international perception uh, of Canada, along with some of the uh, very strange scandals we've been experiencing. Well, yeah, and I I think that that's all all fairly noted. Uh, And I guess the concerning thing is, you know, as we look at, you know, this data is from 2020. I don't know that much has changed for the better over the last couple of years. So even if we're eventually going to get back into the top 10, I hope we do. It's it's not going to happen anytime soon, I suspect. No, I mean, my sense is that we're moving in the wrong uh, direction. Uh, Our government is constantly... Uh, getting bigger, we're increasing uh, our debt, uh, and I would say from what I've seen, the government interference in the economy has also gone up a notch. So I think we'll see further declines um, in the future. But we have to wait for the data.
Indeed we do. Well, this uh, latest data, the latest report, as mentioned, uh, it's available. It's up at FraserInstitute.org. Fred, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Well, again, thank you for your interest. All the best, sir. That is Fred McMahon, uh, Michael Walker, Chair of Economic Freedom Research at the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. And he's been involved in this research for many years. So an interesting overview of what it is we're talking about, why it matters so much, and where Canada has, has taken some steps in the wrong direction. And unfortunately, maybe continues to do so. So we've now slid to 14th. Uh, you get other comparable countries, uh, Japan in 12th, Germany back in 25th, Italy 44th, France 54th. So I guess if you want to find a glass half full perspective, you know, we're, we're well ahead of those other countries. But unfortunately, we're trending in the wrong direction. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.